Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd, and today on the program, I have with me Elliot Powell, the author of the book Sounds from the Other Side, Afro-South Asian Collaborations in Black Popular Music. Elliot, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Andy. So I want to start out with a question that you you don't quite cover in the book, but your book raised for me, which is, are you more of a Coltrane guy or more of a Miles guy? <laughs> oh, I wow. Ha- I have to ask. I mean, if you wrote a book with a chapter about the Beatles and a chapter about the Stones, I would ask that question. So Right. Okay. Uh, this, is, uh, this is very difficult because Miles Davis is on the cover um, and I really enjoy the On the Corner album. Um, but I'm going to have to give it to John Coltrane. Uh, that, that's, yeah, that's, that's going to be my answer. It's a very difficult decision and I'm already dreading what I just <laughs> said, but I am going to stand firm, uh, in, in my, uh, you know, vote in terms of John Coltrane. It's, it's an impossible kind of decision, but for me, uh, John Coltrane for, I think a number of reasons, uh, is, is, is very much an artist who speaks more, uh, to me and to my listening as well. Great, great. Well, I think by the time this episode uh, posts, uh, Twitter will be over, so your mentions are safe. <laughs> Good to hear. Good to hear. Yes. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about just kind of in in broad sp- strokes terms, where did the idea for this book come from, to do a book that's about the influence of Afro-Asian music, or uh, the influence of South Asian music on uh, Black jazz, hip-hop, and, and pop music uh, performance performers? Yeah, no, it's it's a fantastic question. It is somewhat of uh, a long question. I'll try and uh, you know condense it as as much as I can. Uh, so the seeds of this book actually go back to when I was an undergraduate student. So this is what I said. Like it's kind of, it's somewhat of a long story uh, because in 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 many respects this book has been a very long time coming. Uh, so essentially, I was. Um, an undergrad in the early aughts. Uh, and I, at this moment, uh, you know, 2001, 2002, 2003, there were a number of artists and songs, some of them who I talk about in the book, where these were Black artists, uh, especially in hip hop and R&B, who were creating music that uh, was sampling South Asian musicians or working with South Asian and South Asian diasporic kinds of artists as well. And, you know, these are songs like Missy Latino, so Get Your Freak On, or Truth Hurts Addictive, uh, or Timbaland and his song uh, with, you know, Rajesh Wari called Indian Flute. Um, this is all happening around this time. Again, 2001, 2002, 2003, a little bit in 2004 as well. And so I was, again, in college around this period, and I was really interested in this music. And it so happened that I was, at the time, taking a class called the Social and Cultural Analysis of Music. And I wanted to write about this particular, what I thought was a trend. Uh, And so I went to the professor and I asked her, I said, hey, you know, there's this thing that's happening in hip hop and R&B. I'm really interested uh, in kind of thinking through uh, this kind of trend as, as as I was seeing it as a trend. And she gave me the green light and I ended up writing a paper about it. Uh, It was, uh, upon further reflection, a very terrible paper, Um, (laughs) (laughs) but it was something that allowed me to kind of get my ideas on a page. And uh, despite the fact that I now think that it wasn't that great of a paper, uh, the professor in that class thought that there was something there. And so I started to kind of spend a lot more time in undergrad uh, thinking about this particular moment in hip hop and R and B, uh, doing a bit more writing about it, uh, and so when I decided that I wanted to go to graduate school, that project became really part of my application. And so mm-hmm. when I entered grad school, then that small paper uh, turned into a dissertation, and the dissertation uh, was really a comparative project. Uh, and much like that first paper that I wrote in undergrad, the dissertation is something that I'm like, you know, I wrote it, it's there. 
Um, <laughs> it's, it's somewhat long, uh, but it was a comparative project. It was thinking about um, these sets of collaborations between Black and South Asian musicians uh, in terms of the early 2000s compared to those kinds of collaborations that were happening in the 1960s and 1970s. And that mm -hmm. was kind of what the project, that's kind of what the dissertation was about. And, you know, it did, it, it did what it needed to do for a dissertation. Uh, and, you know, I defended and then I got my job at the University of Minnesota. And like many tenure track jobs, especially at Research One kinds of institutions, you need a book in order to get tenure. And usually that first book, the tenure book is based off of the dissertation. And so then for me, the task was to transform the dissertation into a book. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that forced me to kind of think about a lot of different sets of questions. And so that's kind of how the book came out about the, the series of revisions, the series of rewrites, the new chapters, the new things that I had to kind of do in order to make it read and feel very much like a book. And so that's how it became less of a comparative project and more about tracing a genealogy within Black popular music around these sets of collaborations. Mm -hmm. But you do still focus on kind of those those two moments broadly, kind of 60s, 70s, jazz, 90s, early 2000s, hip hop. And and I, I wonder, I mean, you, you could have chosen other moments as well. This is, as you said, it's, it's a, a long tradition of this kind of uh, exchange. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of like uh, Duke Ellington's Far East suite. You could have talked mm -hmm. about that. Like there's a lot of stuff earlier and between those two and even later i mean now with you know someone like kamasi washington definitely seems to be engaged in south asian music so why those two moments why do you feel like those two moments originally in the dissertation spoke to each other and why did why do those remain the moments that you kind of uh, uh looked at primarily uh in this book yeah no and i and i think you make a, a fantastic point i mean there are uh and this is i think a really good thing this is a really productive thing that there are so many sets of examples here that, that that we can pick and choose from and i wanted to be uh really specific and i think intentional on in how i wanted uh to address and talk about these sets of collaborations and one of the things that became really key for me and this in part comes out of my training in terms of the field of american studies is to think about the kind of political context around these sets of collaborations. Uh, and so for me, thinking about moments in the 1960s, 1970s, obviously that's drawing our eyes toward the civil rights movement, toward the black power movements, to other sets of social movements taking place in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, you know, uh, it, it obviously also thinking about third world kind of liberation movements at the same time. But, you know, I also think very critically about this period in the 1980s and really from the 1980s moving into the 1990s and 2000s, uh, where it's still very much a politically uh, uh, important uh, sets of moments when we think about really African-American folks uh, and South Asian and South Asian-American folks in the sense of how... Uh, in many respects, from really the 1980s even until today, the ways in which uh, South Asian Americans and South Asian immigrants are very much pitted against African Americans in a very kind of political uh, mm -hmm. kind of move right here in terms of thinking about we see the emergence of the modern minority category really taking off in, 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 in the 1980s. There's, there's a sort of precedent in the, in the 1960s, but where we see it really sort of cemented is, is really in this moment of the 1980s and very much in terms of today. Um, and so I wanted that to also kind of inform things. So for me, thinking about this moment from the 1960s up into the present is to really uh, talk about these, these, these sets of collaborations against this broader historical mm -hmm. and very much political background and context. One of the things that your book definitely brought to mind was this kind of 60s moment where you have certain black theorists kind of saying, you know, when I say black people, I am sort of I'm I'm kind of talking about colonized people in the world, like this sort of very uh, expansive, solidaristic notion that I associate with somebody like sort of Walter Rodney or, you know, theorists like that. Is that part of the kind of political implications of of your work that part of what you're saying is not to, not to equate these two different cultural groups, but to say that there is a sort of like uh, there's there's enough common uh, common ground there to act as the, the ground for uh, a, a more expansive solidarity. 
Yeah, no, definitely. I think solidarity is very much at the heart of this book. Uh, you know, one of the ways that I'm, I'm thinking about these sets of collaborations is also thinking of thinking about them as spaces of coalition building. Mm -hmm. uh, that became that becomes very central to me in how I'm thinking about the ways that these artists, the ways that these musics are actually interacting. And again, against this broader historical and political uh, kind of backdrop is to think about these kinds of collaborations as sites, as spaces as seeds of coalition building between two sets of marginalized groups. Again, here I'm thinking about Black folks and South Asian folks and the importance of that and the ways in which music, uh, ways in which the music in general, but, but in particular, these uh, kinds of collaborations um, can help us imagine what really Afro-South Asian sets of collaborations and very much coalitions can actually look like, sound like, uh, help, us to, help us to really imagine uh, a, a different kind of world here. Great. So I feel like we've kind of covered some of the broad theoretical uh, grounding of your book. Let's let's get into some of the uh, case studies. You have a chapter about John Coltrane, who you said you know earlier is a favorite of yours, um, mine as well. And I think it's pretty it, pretty obvious at a certain level that um, the later Coltrane is very influenced by. Uh, South Asian and East Asian musics and spirituality and, you know, especially even Alice Coltrane extending that even further after uh, John Coltrane's death. But you kind of want to say even much earlier than that. I mean, Coltrane's career is a very fast uh, moving thing, but you want to say even before most people locate that influence, you, you find it in albums like A Love Supreme. Could you talk a little bit about kind of what uh, Indian music, South Asian music meant to Coltrane at that kind of early 60s stage in his career? Yeah, no, I, I can I, I, I can certainly talk about that. And I'll, I'll also kind of add, I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about uh, the role of really Indian music and Indian spirituality on an album like A Love Supreme is, in fact, as you already mentioned, I think that there are a number of ways, both with Alice Coltrane, but also, of course, with John Coltrane, uh, there are certain songs, certain albums like Om. He has a song called India, right, which is very explicit in how we understand the role and the influence of Indian music and Indian spirituality is in John Coltrane's artistry and career. Uh, but I wanted to kind of make a particular argument in that first chapter to kind of say it's not just a moment where Coltrane says, okay, and now I'm going to go into Indian music, but mm -hmm. rather we see it uh, really throughout much of his music, uh, you know, sort of in the 1960s, right? We see it, we see it in these earlier periods where we might not necessarily expect it. And that's where, uh, where I do my kind of analysis of an album like A Love Supreme. Um, we, we find John Coltrane, especially in this period in the early 1960s, early to mid 1960s, really uh, thinking a lot about spirituality, uh, reading a number, a series of different texts um, that, are, that are outside of um, a kind of Black Christian kind of tradition. He's reading those texts, but he's also interested in other texts. So he would say in various sets of interviews that like there has to be some kind of connection uh, between these multiple spiritual kinds of traditions. Uh, and so John Coltrane was very invested in, in reading as much as he could in terms of spirituality and trying to bring them together, trying to form a kind of connection, trying to have them speak to one another, right? Because he firmly uh, stated that, right, he didn't want to believe that, like, this kind of tradition is right and the other is wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. This notion of right or wrong didn't actually sit well with him. Rather, he's very much interested in how they can work together to help us see a path forward. And so when we think about such a spiritual album like A Love Supreme, and everyone recognizes how spiritual that album is, part of what I wanted to do in, in that particular chapter is talk about how we hear uh, those attempts by John Coltrane uh, to kind of understand uh, these these different kinds of musical kinds of traditions and spiritual kinds of traditions. Here again, I'm talking about sort of African American, uh, you know, sort of manifestations around Christianity, but also kind of Indian spirituality speaking to each other in order to help us uh, see a different path forward, uh, right? To to see as he would call sort of the life side of things. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I I remember in in college going to a musicology lecture and and somebody suggested this idea that a love supreme he he's maybe pronouncing that you know in the in the kind of chanting of it in a way to sound like Allah supreme. Yes. And I remember thinking sort of eh, I don't know maybe. <laughs> um, but you kind of take that seriously. Do you? Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of what's going on there with that sort of uh, you know spiritual pun between a love supreme and Allah supreme? Yeah, and and that's really informed by the work of you know some Mustafa Bayoumi, uh, who 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 was also who was also making a similar kind of argument. And importantly, uh, for Mustafa Bayoumi, is it's really about thinking uh, about these other sets of traditions. Uh, the kind of Amadi, you know, kind of tradition, which is uh, a, 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 a kind of uh, sect around sort of Islam, but it's but it's coming very much out of South Asia as well, um, that had a huge influence on like African Americans in, in terms of the 20th century, especially the mid 20th century, but also had an influence on various sets of, you know, sort of black, uh, uh, had an influence on black kind of jazz musicians, including folks like McCoy Tyner. Right, who obviously worked very closely to John Coltrane. And so I want to take seriously those kinds of connections, uh, again, between sort of Black and South Asian kinds of folks that happen along the lines of spirituality, but they're also happening along the lines of, of music. And so when we think about um, Coltrane being really interested in bringing multiple kinds of traditions you know, in, in, in multiple kinds of traditions, uh, you know, uh, to, to make tab and speak to each other. Uh, I want to take seriously that kind of perhaps slippage between a love supreme and very much, you know, a, a notion around sort of a law supreme. I want to kind of think about and sit with what happens if we actually take this seriously, right? Uh, and what that further highlights for me and what I hope that it highlights for the readers are the ways in which that kind of slippage the way that we can't necessarily hear him say love as, as a perfectly sort of enunciated word, uh, and so we can hear it as sort of Allah, might actually be Coltrane's own attempt uh, to, to kind of sort of linguistically speak to the kinds of connections uh, between multiple kinds of musics and spiritual kinds of traditions. Great, great. What about on the on the sort of musical level? Where do you see the influence of South Asian music on that album, Love Supreme? Yeah, so I I, uh, I spent a lot of time in that chapter uh, talking about Coltrane and uh, the ways in which he's thinking about cyclicality, uh, which has a particular uh, uh, central focus uh, within Hinduism. I talk about the importance of uh, this kind of droning uh, and, and the kind of droning as, as a key aspect of really North Indian classical music. And so there's, there's a way in which uh, I think about those sets of things, uh, this, this notion around cyclicality, this, the, the, the centrality of the drone as being central aspects to an album like A Love Supreme uh, and the ways in which they also, again, are speaking to Indian sets of spirituality, as well as as well as as well as again, sort of North Indian, as well as North Indian kind of classical music here. Uh, and there's a really, uh, I think, key way that, uh, as I as I mentioned in the book, uh, Coltrane talks about um, again the importance of droning. First, when he 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 thinks about droning and very much the kind of late 1950s, wanting to kind of take it up as a kind of organizing rubric in his music, but we see it happening more fully in terms of an album like A Love Supreme. And so again, for me, uh, the kinds of musical influences of North Indian classical music don't simply exist in the kind of mid to late 1960s period of Coltrane, but actually we can think about them as dating back as early as the late 1950s. It might've taken him a while to kind of really fully integrate it into a sound, uh, but by the time that we hit the early 1960s, my argument is that it's very much there. And it's not just mm-hmm. simply there in the explicit songs, like a song like India, uh, but it's actually in these songs that we might, ne- that we might not necessarily uh, identify as such. And you kind of argue that you hear that influence in modal jazz as a whole, where it's not so much based on these quick chord changes as in as in bebop, but it kind of has these. It's more kind of within one uh, 
I'm not a I'm not a music scholar at all, so you'll have to right. forgive me. But it's you know it's it's more about the developing within a certain uh, you know key or chord structure rather than changing that up as much. You kind of say that that shows some of that influence of of Indian music. Yeah, no, I definitely kind of think about the ways that modal jazz allows someone like Coltrane uh, to adopt something like ragas, a kind of collection of pitches. Uh, that those kinds of things are resonant, but not really sort of, uh, but they're, they're, they're very kind of resonant here that kind of allow him to bring in different sets of musical kinds of traditions here. Uh, that the kind of expansiveness around modal jazz uh, becomes really kind of welcoming. It becomes a welcoming space for Coltrane to kind of bring in different sets of musical kinds of ideas. They, they, it, it's a kind of expansion of time uh, uh, in, in, a, in a particular kind of way in meter, but it also just allows him to kind of say, well, I can do these other sets of things now with really the advent and, and the emergence or, and the emergence of, of um, a particular kind of a particular kind of subgenre like modal jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, before we move on, I want to um, pick up one of the uh, other ideas in your chapter, which is this quote that uh, Louise uh, Davis Stone has, where. Um, she calls Coltrane the James Baldwin of Horn, which I thought was sort of a surprising thing to say. I mean, I'm not sure that those are two figures that I think of as having a, a lot in common. Um, but but you, I guess, sort of <laughs> do or you wouldn't have mentioned it. Um, could you tell us a bit about kind of what you think that uh, critic meant at the time and and how that's revealing of kind of how both of those figures were thought of? I mean, I think this is like the early 60s that this quote happened, so... They both go in very different directions after that. But where were both of those artists at that time that somebody might group them together? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, that's kind of how, how, I, how I start the chapter. And I, I started uh, in, in, a, in a number of, of, of for, for a number of reasons. I think one is to kind of think about uh, the ways that um, both Coltrane and James Baldwin um, are also emerging as I think very much um, as, as these kind of political figures, even though Coltrane didn't necessarily want to identify as a political figure himself, mm-hmm. uh, a number of black activists during the early 1960s and especially moving forward in terms of the black arts movement, uh, as, 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 well as, as, as well as the black power movement, saw Coltrane as, as a kind of important kind of cultural figure here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have the kind of use of Coltrane and Baldwin uh, in, in this kind of review. Really interesting because I think it draws attention to at least for this particular writer, uh, the kind of political importance of the work of John Coltrane. And at the same time, I wanted to think about uh, what this might mean in terms of thinking about Coltrane as someone who, uh, who is, we don't necessarily talk about Coltrane in this way, but who doesn't necessarily fit particular kinds of archetypes when we think about the jazz man. And again, so mm-hmm. here's the kind of comparison between Coltrane and Miles Davis, who, who had this kind of black masculine cool, right? Coltrane doesn't necessarily have that. There's, there's a way that we can't necessarily pinpoint a kind of normative masculinity around Coltrane. Similarly, as we, as we know, right, James Baldwin as a, you know, sort of black queer man. And so I wanted to think about uh, these kinds of, 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 of sort of, of, of sort of resonances in terms of how Coltrane and Baldwin are transgressing these norms around gender in really important ways in the 1960s, even though they might not um, sort of intentionally be doing this. Other folks are picking up on this and other folks are picking up on the importance of the ways in which folks like Coltrane and Baldwin, again, are really resisting these norms around gender and what that might actually mean. And so that becomes a, a really kind of central aspect that I think is, is, is very much a through line in terms of the whole book about those who are transgressing norms around gender and sexuality through these kinds of collaborations. Mm-hmm. I think that really revealed to me, I mean, I my sense of Coltrane from what I've read and from listening to the music is, has always been as somebody who has a, a sort of, sensitive kind of questing spirit it's not this sort of like i have something to say and i'm going to say it and you better listen attitude it it feels much more sort of like 
exploratory and and in some in some periods even kind of tentative uh, is For that sure. part of what you're talking about yeah i mean that, that's that's part of what i'm talking about the kind of uh the, the kind of shyness sometimes in terms of culturing um but you know again we can we, it, there's a way that other kinds of really prominent male jazz uh figures that we can think about Coltrane doesn't seem to kind of embody these kinds of masculinities, these kind of archetypes, right? So again, I mentioned Miles Davis. Mm-hmm. We can we can think about sort of we can think about someone like Dizzy Gillespie, right? We can think about Armstrong here. Coltrane doesn't necessarily fit, right, in those kinds of categories, um, right? He seems to be kind of off to the side. He seems to have a, a different kind of way in which. He's, he's expressing his kind of black masculinity mm-hmm. in a similar way that for me, uh, James Baldwin doesn't fit into these black masculine kind of uh, black masculine kind of activist archetypes yeah. of someone like Malcolm X or King. Right. And so how both Coltrane and Baldwin are sitting outside of these norms make it for me, really interesting to think about what kinds of resonances might actually exist if we put them in conversation. Mm-hmm. I think maybe one of the things that makes it hard to see them as such singular figures is that I think both of them are so influential that, you know, they're almost kind of founders of a discourse, you know, like there is there is a kind of culture descended spiritual jazz guy. Like that's a recognizable type of jazz guy, but probably wasn't really before Coltrane. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's move on to Miles Davis and uh, the album On the Corner, um, which is not an album that I've typically thought of as having uh, a kind of deep connection to South Asian music. So where do you where do you see that connection um, between between On the Corner and South Asian music? Yeah, so really, the 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 album on the corner is is a really interesting album for a number of, of reasons. Um, I, I talk about this in the book, right? So it's an album that comes out in 1972. Uh, it's an album that Miles Davis uh, wanted to put out explicitly to reach uh, the kind of black youth of the black power movement and the black power kind of generation here. Um, but what makes it really interesting is that it's the first and only Miles Davis studio album where he has hired uh, South Asian sets of musicians to play on the album. Uh, he also has uh, South Asian kinds of instrumentation. So there's a tabla drum, there's a sitar on the album. Uh, and so it's a really kind of interesting album where we hear these kinds of influences of South Asian music and we hear these collaborations with South Asian artists on this album that Miles Davis is, is, is explicitly trying to say, like, I want to reach and speak to uh, the, the Black Power movement here. And Miles Davis is very clear that he wanted this to be an album that's centered and, and thought through and expressed, as he was seeing it, Black politics. And so you have those kinds of connections, right? These, these sets of coalition buildings uh, that's happening between Black and South Asian kinds of folks through this particular album. Great. Um, one of the things that you talk about uh, in the chapter, which is why I'm bringing it up, is uh, Miles Davis's sort of complicated combination of having this very utopian uh, idea of the corner as this kind of meeting place, and you refer to corner politics, um, with Coltrane's own you know, less than stellar uh, uh, treatment of other people at times. I don't know how we want to say this, but, um, you know, there's something utopian about the music and there's something, I don't want to say dystopian, um, but there's something a, a, a bit uh, less open-minded and coalition-minded and solidaristic about Miles as a person, who's somebody who, you know, in in, in many ways is, is often thought of as being kind of ruthlessly... Uh, self-directed and uh and kind of individualistic i mean i don't know if i i again i don't know a lot about miles davis's biography as a person i don't i don't hear that in the music as much as some people do i mean i think that he seems like a very generous band leader in terms of how much space he's giving to other performers on the albums but i did want to kind of talk about that you know how do you square what you see as being inspirational on a kind of political and even moral sense about his music with some of his, you know, personal behavior. Yeah, no, and and that was that was really, I think, the struggle in writing this particular tra- in, in this particular chapter because I was very invested 
I still very much am invested because I believe this to be true, that On the Corner um, gives us a, a really fascinating um, blueprint, a, a kind of musical kind of blueprint for how we might think about coalition building on in term, in, 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 along the lines of uh, race and class and gender and sexuality. And yet at the same time, trying to kind of also not erase the fact that Miles Davis, and he has said this by his own admission, um, assaulted women, right? And so uh, trying to kind of uh, not erase that fact, but to also kind of talk about the ways in which um, the music exceeds, you know, intentionality here. Uh, that 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 what's happening in the music goes beyond really what 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 Miles was even uh, sort of attempting to do, right? That that becomes a, a really kind of crucial thing for me to talk about is that what 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 Miles intended to do, right? Uh, the music is doing something more than that. It's going beyond those sets of things. And so there are, there, there are these moments, and I, I do a reading of the cover of the album, um, and, and I talk about the ways in which, importantly, Miles Davis initially seemed to want the, the album to depict uh, the Black women on the cover in a, in a somewhat sort of degrading or sort of objectifying way. Uh, but what we actually see on the cover is is actually the the kind of reverse of that, the opposite of that. Uh, we see women on the cover playing these very active kinds of roles on the cover. And so again, this is Miles' particular kind of intent for the cover that speaks a lot to, uh, again, by his own admission, the kind of misogyny and sexism that he had. And yet we have... Uh, these kinds of depictions on women, in terms of women on the cover that exceed those sets of things, right? And so I wanted to kind of talk about the kind of complexity here. And one of the one of the arguments that that that, that I make in the chapter um, is that the album on the corner, both in terms of the cover but also the music itself, uh, essentially, you know, um, give us. The, the kind of process, but not the product of solidarity, right? The way in which we typically think about solidarity is that these fully formed kind of things uh, on the corner gives us the kind of messiness, the messiness of, 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 of the work that's involved in, 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 in terms of solidarity movements. It's giving us the messiness and the work that's necessary in building coalitions. These aren't uh, neat kinds of things. We we want to see them as neat, right? We kind of want to fast forward to solidarity movements as as already being like perfect and sound and productive. Uh, but we want to kind of not think about the work that's necessary in order to build these productive and, and, and very much and very much kind of politically important forms of solidarity. I think that on the corner, given this personal history of Miles Davis working through uh, that kind of sexism and misogyny, but also this importance about building co coalitions between Black and South Asian folks, and, and as I also talk about in the chapter, LGBTQ plus folks, the, the album, in all, its, in all its complexity, in all its messiness, is showing us that work, is showing us what that work kind of looks like in order to kind of build a kind of more kind of utopic world, right? Uh, it's, it's showing us the work involved. It's showing us the messiness involved. It's showing us the kind of complicated terrain that folks must have to traverse in order to build this more free world. And when you say that the album is showing us that process, you're being pretty literal there. I mean, the, the album was was kind of not planned out in advance. And in, in, uh, it's not like Miles Davis gave everybody, you know, sheet music and said, here, play this. Like it is, it's sort of a jam that then gets edited into an album later on. Is that right? Exactly, exactly, right? So everyone uh, kind of showed up in the summer and in, 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 in very much June of, of 1972. And there wasn't much kind of direction that Miles Davis was giving. And, and also not everyone, uh, what I later found out, not everyone had 
headphones. So folks weren't necessarily hearing each other. And so it became this really kind of complicated thing. But I, but I also want to sit with that that, the, that, that, that sort of not everyone was hearing each other. But they had to kind of yeah. play together, right? And 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 what that might actually mean in a more kind of metaphoric sense, but also in, in terms of a literal sense of the process of building coalitions here, right? Where folks are talking across difference. Folks have to mm-hmm. kind of find a kind of common language, find find a way to speak to one another. But they might come, they might start off not actually hearing each other, not actually listening to each other, but they can work toward that. And so this is why I think that album is 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 so uh, important and so interesting to me and why I thought like, I actually need to, I need to write about this uh, because I think those lessons, I think we're still kind of struggling with as we continue to try to build various sets of coalitions in our contemporary world. I feel, I feel like I've definitely been in that organizing meeting <laughs> where not everyone has headphones. It seems exactly. Like. Exactly. Same. I've, I've also been in those spaces as well. Yeah. Um, I want to, I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I do want to talk about kind of the other big half of the book, which is, as you talked about earlier, that uh, kind of early 2000s moment. Is it a, is it a fad? Is it something deeper where uh, American hip hop and sort of, hip-hop adjacent pop artists are very interested in South Asian music. And you talk about Outkast as an example of this, um, which I had never really thought of them in that way. Um, so how, how do you see Outkast making use of South Asian music? And also, you mentioned, especially in the case of, of Andre, uh, South Asian fashion, um, to kind of differentiate themselves both from the East Coast and the West Coast. Yeah, no, and and so that was when I uh, that was one thing that was not in the dissertation. I did not have any kind of analysis around Outkast, um, and and so as I was kind of doing these 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 sets of revisions, I remember thinking, I've always wanted to think more uh, explicitly and very much interrogate Andre three thousand and Outkast. In, in this period of 1996 and the AT Aliens album, which, which is, for the record, my favorite Outkast album. Um, and, and it was a really interesting period because we see Andre 3000 adopting a fashion of the turban, wearing other sets of South Asian fashions as well. And I was really interested in thinking about that and thinking about uh, this, this, this figure of an AT alien and the figure of the alien as both Andre and Big Boy were adopting for the album, um, but this kind of outsider kind of positionality that not only spoke to their outsider positionalities as rappers from the South, but could mm-hmm. also have resonances to South Asian immigrants and South Asian Americans as being outsiders within the space of the US. And so I was thinking about what it might mean uh, the kind of, again, these kinds of resonances uh, for uh, someone like, you know, sort of Andre 3000 and, and very much Big Boy as, as, as a group like Outkast, thinking about the figure of the Outkast, right, which is another kind of outsider kind of positionality, right? So I think about the Outkast as, again, a kind of outside figure, the alien as another kind of outside figure, but the ways in which, you know, sort of legislatively in terms of immigration policy in terms of the U.S., thinking about South Asians, but more broadly sort of Asian Americans as quote unquote aliens, right? That's the kind of language around mm-hmm. in, 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 in terms of, you know, some immigration policy. And so I was thinking about that album, thinking about how I might think uh, in terms of those sets of collaborations, in terms of those kinds of influences, those kinds of resonances uh, that happen through this, through really this album. So it's less, less so uh, sonically, in terms of uh, hearing the the music of South Asia, in terms of an album like AT Aliens, but more so, what are the ways in which we can read and understand the influence of South Asian culture on these on these kind of musicians, on their artistry at this period in 1996? And so that's what became really important to me. And so what I what I was finding out. Um, in terms of my research for this particular chapter, is talking about the role of the turban uh, within sort of African American culture as a way that, for some, uh, and this was, a, and, and very much, you know, this was especially true for various sets of African American kinds of musicians, male musicians here, like like folks like Dizzy Gillespie, 
to adopt the turban as a way uh, to bypass sets of Jim Crow laws. laws. And so there's a kind of uh, history within sort of African-American history, but especially within, within sort of Black music history of these kinds of adoptions of things like a turban that I find Andre 3000 really kind of working through, working through that kind of Southern Black history mm-hmm. uh, that I thought was really interesting to actually bring up as well. And the last thing that, I, that, that, that I'll say that I uh, did not mention, uh, in, in, I don't, it's, it's not in the full uh, chapter, I believe I did actually footnote it, uh, right? But now, you know, Andre 3000 uh, is a huge John Coltrane fan. And, mm. uh, and so there's a way that, that we can see Andre working through a Coltrane kind of tradition as well. I feel like I would be, I, I don't know that I'd push back too strongly if somebody told me that Andre 3000 was the James Baldwin of rap. You know, I feel like there's a similar. Right. Yes. He's, he's rejecting a certain, you know, uh, style of, of masculinity as well that, you know, For sure. um, another thing that I, uh, I want to talk about in, in this context is this sort of very funny moment in the book where I forget who it was, but somebody kind of says like, you know, we all kind of thought under 3000 looked like our grandparents, like yes. our grandmothers. Like, yes. Yeah. There's this yeah. sort of like very humorous Afro-South Asian connection of like, you know, he's trying to look sort of far out and, and you know, South Asian or, or you know, East Asian or something. But but he's kind of dressing like Lena Horne or something. You know? Right. No, no. And that was and that's so that goes back to, 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 to what you just said. Right. There's a way in which the turban signals a kind of connection to South Asia. It's it it uh, it also signals a connection to Black music history, uh, and yet it also signals a uh, a kind of connection um, to Black women's history, uh, and especially sort of elderly kind of Black women's history in, involving involving wearing things like like turbans that speak to the ways that Andre three thousand is really rejecting and resisting these norms around masculinity, right? So that's, again, mm-hmm. another kind of tie between Coltrane uh, and, 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 and very much someone like Andre. So that turban is doing a lot of work. It's signaling multiple sets of histories and cultures. And I wanted to kind of talk about that, right? I wanted to kind of bring these things kind of together and bring them in conversation uh, because they very much are in conversation. And so I want to have them speak to one another and, and think about what happens when we sit with those kind of intersecting histories. Um, I want to move on to this, the song Addictive by Truth Hurts, which I think you briefly mentioned earlier. And this is with this song, we're kind of getting a little bit closer to uh, the kind of a cultural appropriation debate that has become uh, so kind of dominant in these sorts of conversations about any kind of uh, cross-cultural cultural exchange. Um, how do you feel like that song kind of complicates a, a simplistic narrative? I mean, is that the, I forget which one it was. Is that the song that somebody made some tweet about where they were like, this song's kind of problematic, but it slaps. Is that, yes, is that that yes, one? Or, yes. yes. Okay. No, no, it's, it's, okay, it's definitely that song. And I, and I knew I could not write this book without talking about addictive in part because that moment, even though that song did not go to number one, it, it's such um, a kind it's of a watershed banger. moment. It's a banger in, in, <laughs> in first and foremost, right? I love the song, but it's also yes. somewhat of a watershed moment because there was this multi, like a $500 million lawsuit that was filed against Dr. Dre and you know, DJ Quick, who actually produced the song and Truth Hurts. And because of what uh, the, the, the the kind of Bollywood uh essentially sort of a Bollywood company had alleged uh, that there was a particular film song that was sampled and it wasn't, uh, and and they hadn't authorized to clear it. And so there was this, again, this $500 million lawsuit. So it made uh, this kind of mainstream news. Mm -hmm. Uh, It also scared a lot of people into continuing to sampling. Folks had to figure out what to kind of do here because now there's this huge lawsuit but attached to this, what a lot of media reports were coming out is that they were saying that, that the song is also sort of evidence of cultural appropriation. And, and, and more explicitly, they were saying that it, it is an evidence of uh, cultural imperialism. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to kind of sit with these sets of things and think about, right, is that, or, 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 is that the action, is that the, the, the right framework? Is that, yeah. is that an accurate framework to use, right? What does it mean to think about imperialism, to think about appropriation when we're talking about two sets of marginalized groups? What does it mean to think about, to say that sort of African-Americans are invested or, or, or participating, actively participating in a U.S. imperial project, knowing that sort of U.S. empire has um, been able to be maintained through the subjugation of African-Americans, right? So for me, it's this very mm-hmm. kind of murky kind of terrain where I'm like, I don't know if this necessarily fits as a productive framework. And one of the things that I that I talk about in that particular chapter, right, is, is that usually this language around cultural imperialism, right, uh, often involves a kind of way that uh, it, it frames uh, a kind of non-Western entity as non-normative, as inferior, mm-hmm. um, Right. But what we have in a song like Addictive is that's not what's happening, really. Right. Right. Through this working of this Bollywood film song, Truth Hurts is also uh, really rejecting norms of gender and sexuality, especially the black politics of respectability. And so we have a kind of working through this Bollywood film song that, that, that also deals with gender and sexuality in a non-normative way. The, the truth hurts and addictive. They're bringing these sets of conversations again. They're bringing these sets of musics very much to speak to one another. And I think that's the really interesting part for me. And so that's where I think culture imperialism and culture appropriation kind of uh, fail to be adequate frameworks, right? I'm not trying to say that cultural appropriation uh, is not a good word or not a good kind of, uh, again, sort of framing for things, because I think it's very important and very valuable for a number of reasons. But I think and in, in uh, I think there are some kinds of scenarios where it doesn't actually apply, that something else mm-hmm. is going on. And so what I wanted to do with Truth Hurts and Addictive is talk about this other thing that's happening, where the kind of language of cultural imperialism, where the language of cultural language of cultural appropriation seem to fail. Uh, as lenses to kind of think through this particular song. And so I wanted to think differently about the song. And I was really drawing on the work of T. Carlos Roberts, who, who, who first in, in their book, sort of Afro-Asian, uh, sorry, the book is called Resounding Afro-Asia, was also trying to uh, rethink a song like Addictive, right? So I'm very mm-hmm. much in conversation with them in, in, in saying like, hey, the ways that folks seem to be talking about this song don't seem to be really listening to the song uh, Mm -hmm. and understanding a a lot of the politics involved in the song. And so I wanted to follow their path and thinking and thinking differently about it. I think the funniest critique of the song is that it sexualizes Bollywood as if Bollywood is this like chaste medium that never discusses romance or sex or sexuality at all. Like... Right. Like it's and, like and, this, like re- almost like religious, you know, sacrosanct thing. But it's like I don't know. I've have you been into like a an Indian restaurant when they're playing Bollywood music videos? Like they're every bit as sexual as you know '90s rap videos in, I, in some cases. And I wanted to talk about the way, and I, I do talk about this in the chapter, the way that the Bollywood film song that it sampled the actual uh, song and dance sequence. Uh, and involves a a woman who is uh, moving her breast, uh, which there's also this kind of uh, quasi S and M kind of illusion. There are whips within the song and dance sequence. This flirtatious whipping, and I'm thinking like, how can you say that addictive is is sort of sexualizing Bollywood and it's and it's doing these things when clearly these things are going on in the song and dance sequence, right? Mm-hmm. So like that was for me trying to kind of say that like actually what what addictive is doing is again uh, for me laying bare the ways in which addictive as a song, but also the Bollywood the the, the, the kind of Bollywood film song in which it samples are both rejecting these middle-class norms around respectability, especially around Black women's bodies and South Asian women's bodies, 
um, they're, 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 they're kind of having a kind of conversation. They're having a, a mutual kind of rejection of these norms that I think is really important to talk about. I feel like there could be some, some journal article here of like the solidarity of shaking butts or something like that. I don't know. You, you can polish that, but uh. yeah, no. And there are, there are, there are folks who, who have already been doing that work as well. Yes. Fantastic. Well, I want to just ask one final question, um, which is, uh, this book came out a, a couple of years ago. I'm sure you're still, uh, you know, uh, taking a victory lap from that, but do we, is there anything else that you're working on now that you'd like to let our listeners know about or have, have their eyes on the horizon for? Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm working on a number of different sets of projects. Um, three kind of book projects that I can talk about, uh, very briefly, um, Two of them have nothing to do about Afro-South Asia stuff. Um, uh, one is, is, is actually about prints. So at, at, in terms of University of Minnesota for the past God number of years, um, a number of years, let's say six years now, it's basically sort of before Prince passed away, I'd been teaching a class at the University of Minnesota about Prince and, and about... Um, thinking locally about Prince and thinking locally about Minneapolis and the intersections of music and sex culture in Minneapolis during the 1980s. And so I'm working on a book that's about that, that's about Minneapolis in the 1980s and the intersections around music and sex culture. Um, And then I'm doing another book uh, that I'm still trying to kind of think through that's dealing with music, but it's thinking about um, things like demos. I'm really interested in the work of demos uh, as, and, and, and kind of analyzing demos in terms of Black popular music, I'm, I'm really interested in how, how often uh, we kind of not, we, we, we don't really sort of sit with demos. We don't really kind of analyze them. We just kind of say, yeah, well, that's a demo, but like we're really more focused on the song that was actually released. And I want to do more work about what demos might be able to tell us about the songwriting process, about the production mm. process. Um, and so that's, that's the kind of second project that I'm doing. And the last project uh, actually has nothing to do with music, but it takes me back to thinking about Afro-South Asian uh, sets of workings. Uh, and that's actually the work of HBCUs uh, within really Indian independence movements uh, in South Asian politics. Uh, and so that's that's a that's another project that I'm look I'm really excited to kind of do. It's a project that is uh, really going to be down the line because I have to do a number of kind of archival things, and I also have to learn new history, right? So uh, I'm very much someone who has training within music. I'm not someone who has the training within educational history, uh, and so it's going to be a different kind of thing for me. But I'm really excited uh, to take on this 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 third kind of project. So. At some point, those works will be out in the future. Uh, most likely, the Prince one is going to be the first one that's going to come out because that's the one that's, I think, closest done. And more, I've done more work, I've done more writing in that area. Um, and then I think sort of the second and third projects will come out in due time. Oh, great. My my mom graduated from high school in Minneapolis in 1980. So needless to say, she's a massive Prince fan and will be very yes. excited about that book. <laughs> very cool. Very cool. Well, those very sound, cool. all sound very cool, Elliot. I'll, I'll have to have you back on the show when, uh, when, when those come out. Yes, I would love that, Andy.